Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. I am here with Cy Gart, and Cy is a very interesting character. He is a PhD biologist. He has written papers about the new versions of evolution um, that I often talk about. He's also editor of the American Scientific Affiliations magazine, God and Nature, and uh, we've been friends for a few years, and every time I go to a conference and Sai is there, we always have these fantastic conversations. He's a very eclectic individual. He has very interesting things to say about faith and science and science in general, and he has a very interesting story. And so I thought nothing would be better than for Friends of Evolution 2.0 to meet Sai Gart. So Sai, welcome. I'm Thank glad you. you're here today. Good to be here. Um, so you've had some pretty interesting posts in your career being in charge of interesting things all the way from fractals to being on various review committees. Could you give people just like a little bit of a resume so they have a sense of who this guy is and then we'll really roll up our sleeves and dig in. Okay. Well, professionally, I followed the academic route after my PhD. I did a postdoc and then became an assistant professor and slowly climbed up the ladder of academia uh, to professor with tenure. And in that process, I was doing research most of the time, a little teaching, but I was mostly doing research on various aspects of environmental health, toxicology, cancer research, that involved molecular biology and cell biology, population genetics. So it was a long career and I did a lot of research. The, interesting you mentioned the fractals because that was way outside of my actual research field. And what was very funny about, I love the paper, I love the work that I did on it, but it kept getting rejected from journals and the comments would be something like, why is Gart working on this? <laughs> this is not his field. Yeah. And uh, you know, that's, fairly common in academia. You can, you can get a paper published that's not very good if you've already published 36 papers on the same subject and they know you. Mm -hmm. uh, if you try to do something new, and I think you have some familiarity with this syndrome. <laughs> a little, perhaps. It's a little bit more resistance, you know, to new things and new ideas. I eventually did get it published in the Journal of Theoretical Biology, and it's actually the first demonstration that DNA is has fractal properties. It's been repeated by others since then, but I'm very proud of that paper, even though it was considered way out of, <laughs> out of the mainstream. So anyway, that was my research career. Uh, I went to Europe for about a decade, still doing research, uh, came back at the University of Pittsburgh for a few years, and then I decided I have, I'm tired. <laughs> I had had 25 grants during my career and uh, put out over 200 papers, and I was just getting tired of doing research. So I took a job at the NIH, where I was a division director at the Center for Scientific Review, which is in charge of reviewing most of the grants that come into NIH. So I did that for six years, and then I officially retired. But as you mentioned, uh, my retirement has not been exactly dull since I've taken <laughs> editorship. I have a book coming out, which I'm very happy about, which is called The Works of His Hands. And of course, you, Perry, know about it since you were one of my first readers and gave me a lot of great help on it. So the subtitle is A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. And what that implies is that not only was I a scientist my whole career, and remain a scientist, but I began life as an atheist and uh, had a, a long, slow journey to 
become a, a very, what I consider to be a very devout follower of Jesus. And uh, how that happened is maybe of some interest. The book will be published by Kriegel and it's coming out in November. Uh, it should be ready for pre-order and pretty soon. Oh, excellent. Well, so I read this book quite a while ago. It had to have been more than a year ago. Yeah. And I was impressed. And I am very jaded. I have seen lots of books like this, and most of them are lame. <laughs> and this was actually, the pages crackled with excitement. And I actually think you have a great story. And it's a different sort of a story. It's a very thoughtful and nuanced story. It's not just some guy getting struck by lightning one day. Mm. And I would love for you to just talk about your story. So um, not everybody listening would know that NIH is the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. And between them and one other agency, basically all of the money for science research comes from pretty much two places, and that's one of them. And so you being in charge of grant reviews, well, that wow. makes you a what? One-fifth of the grant reviews. There were five divisions. I ran one of the divisions. Well, okay. So you're in charge still of a lot of grants. <laughs> that's a lot of grants, and that's a lot of power, like with a flick of a yeah. switch. Like yeah. you can come – you know in that job – that you were completely changing people's careers and departments and everything when you press send on an email. <laughs> right? True. Well, why don't you talk about that just a little, and then let's jump over to your story. Well, I, when I first took the job, I was actually somewhat overwhelmed by that power and uh, having so much influence on how American or actually worldwide research in various fields would go. But I calmed down after a few weeks because I found out, like in most administrative jobs, and I think this is true throughout the government, by the way, no one really has that much power. It's, you might, it may sound as if you do, but there's <laughs> so many rules and checks and balances and things that, you know, that make sure that you don't do what you shouldn't do that it, it, you really end up just following the rules pretty much. I did do a few things that were, I thought were helpful to some of the fields I was interested in. And I did a lot of work, mostly supervising the people who actually ran the study sections. Study sections are the groups of scientists who meet and actually review the grants in an expert way and decide what's going to get funded. And they are managed by one of our employees, and I'm supervising all of those people. So it was more supervision than actually, you know, making decisions on individual grants. But we did have a lot of influence. The, the division directors had a lot of influence on general policy, how the NIH reviews grants, things of that sort. And it was very interesting. It was not something I had ever done before. I'd always been an a independent academic professor who just, you know, basically, I was the one writing for grants. <laughs> and it was interesting to work for the government, but six years was enough. And uh, I'm happy for the experience. And in fact, one of the rules of having that job was I wasn't allowed to publish my own work at that point. So I stopped doing pretty much any of my own work. And one thing that I'm happy to say about retirement is that I've actually started doing a little bit more research and I have a couple of papers that uh, one is just about to be accepted and the other one I just submitted. So, you know, that's nice uh, when you can do that kind of thing. What do you think about the rules they gave you in that job? Were they good rules? Bad rules? They were good. A lot of them were designed to prevent any hint or possibility of corruption or unfairness, anything that would, I mean, you know, the rules for working in a place like that were pretty strict in terms of financial conflict of interest or anything else that could be considered a conflict of interest. And uh, we were told that it's not enough to avoid a conflict of interest. You have to avoid the appearance of a conflict of interest. So even if you're completely innocent of anything, you shouldn't do anything like you know, comment on 
social media. I had no, very little, if any, social media connection with that during that period. And certainly nothing on politics or even nothing on science. Because uh, if I had tweeted or put a Facebook post out about what I thought was the right science, or good science or bad science, that could be construed by people as NIH policy or CSR policy or whatever. And that's, yeah. I don't know. So there were a lot of restrictions on what I could do in life, in my you know real life. And that's another thing that I, once I left NIH and retired, and I'm now completely independent, I immediately started a Twitter account and uh, got active on Twitter and Facebook and my Twitter account is devoted almost entirely to my Christian faith and especially to how I feel about the compatibility between modern science and Christianity. Well, so let's pick up there. So, you know, there's this very popular idea that, you know, science and religion are at war with each other and science has been slowly beating religion's ass for the last 400 years and all of that, right? So you were not a person of faith a long time ago. So give me a picture of you personally and professionally and then take us on the journey. Well, so my story is unusual in one regard. There are quite a few people I know who were atheists some even grew up in atheist households who then later in life became religious, either Christian or some other religion. But I don't know anyone else who has my story, which is that I did grow up in an atheist household, but in addition to being atheists, my parents had been members of the American Communist Party. All right. So they were not just simply, we don't believe in God. They had a very strong faith commitment to the absence of God and to the idea that religion is evil, uh, Christianity among the most <laughs> evil. So that's how I grew up, with a sort of a very, obviously a very left-wing view of the world, but more relevant is that I was much more militant than the most militant atheists around today because it wasn't just that, you know, the the famous definition that they love to say is all we are is we simply don't believe what you believe. Whether that's a really good definition of atheism or not, we can discuss later, but I wasn't there. I was, no, 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 no. There's no possibility of God. There's no supernatural. There's no spirituality. The communists were actually even opposed to things like Freudian psychology. I mean, it was all absolutely 100% pure materialism. You know, uh, logical positivism, if you can't, you know, study it scientifically, it's meaningless. And that was how I, that's how I was brought up. And that was my belief system. And, you know, that's a kind of a tough philosophy to hold when you live in the real world and you have things like emotions. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you're listening to music and you feel something. I mean, where, where does that come from? Yeah, so, there were a lot of things that kind of began to weaken my faith in this philosophical materialistic attitude. And eventually, when I went to school, when I went to college and started learning, you know, science, especially parts of modern physics, I was studying chemistry, so I had to learn the Schrodinger equation, which is something related to quantum mechanics. Uh, it, it was weird because I began seeing that even science itself is not materialistic. You really cannot hold to a faith in pure materialism and understand what quantum mechanics is all about. So I started really questioning the way, you know, we all know many, many Christians who at a certain point in early I'd say early adulthood, begin wondering, or even later, is all this real? And they walk away from church and they suddenly get this revelation that it's all a myth. They don't believe it. That's exactly what happened to me, except it was towards atheism, towards materialism, not, not towards... It was in atheism. reverse. It was in reverse. That's right. I took the reverse path from what we always hear about. 
I sort of became, I was still an atheist. I still didn't believe in God. I had no reason to. I still thought, you know, the idea of a God or Jesus was sort of made up. But I wasn't that sure about materialism. And the more I studied science, and eventually, you know, I, I got a PhD in biochemistry and learned amazing things about how biology works, which I remember sitting in a classroom and getting chills up and down my spine when I learned about a protein synthesis. You know, I was like, what? That really happens? How does that work? <laughs> I mean, it was incredible. Yeah. And I looked around and nobody else was they were all taking notes, but nobody else was like me. I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's amazing. And when I used to, then when I, when I started teaching this stuff, I had the same attitude. And I had students tell me that I reminded them of their pastor, you know, <laughs> when I started talking about some of these biological mechanisms, I kind of got a, you know, a spark of some kind of passion. Uh, what I'm talking about, which still happens today, actually. Yeah, yes, so, it does. And I didn't know what was behind all of that. I just said, well, that's amazing, you know, but it never dawned on me to think, okay, so where did it come from? <laughs> if wow. it's that amazing, you know, what's the source? Maybe I did think of it a little, but I never went very far with it. So I stayed, eventually, though, I became a research scientist, and I got to the point where I decided that okay, I'm definitely missing something in my upbringing. I'm missing this sense of spirituality, of understanding of, you know, the larger picture of things. And I decided that that could be filled, that gap could be filled by science. And I became very devoted to my research. And I, you know, was one of those science fanatics who just thought everything was wonderful with science. And But I kept my sort of, at this time, that atheist agnostic viewpoint I didn't really care much about religion. It wasn't on my mind. But then, as happens, I think, with almost everyone, it was a series of personal experiences, not philosophical or, you know, ideology things, that brought me eventually to become a Christian in a slow way. And that included things like going to church. I'd never been to a church in my life. And first time I walked into a church, and this was with a friend, she brought me to this Catholic church and I was terrified. I'd literally never been in any church. <laughs> wow. And, and how uh, old were you at this point? Oh, I'm in my forties. Oh, wow. Yeah. wow. Okay. <laughs> and I walked into this Catholic church with absolute, I think I was trembling. I mean, I expected to be, you know, pointed out and cast into the street and, you know, have whatever, you know, horrible, whatever the horrible things that were done in the Crusades, you know, which I knew all about. And I sat there and I was stunned because, first of all, the priest gave a sermon that was all about love. There was no condemnation. You know, he didn't look down at me and shake his finger and say, you're going to, you're going to hell, <laughs> nothing like that. And people were friendly and, you know, they shook they shook my hand, wished me the peace of Christ. I, this was, what is this? Have I been lied to? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that kind of made me think, well, gee, maybe there's something, you know, so I decided to read the Gospels. And I think I had glanced through them before, probably in college, you know, but I don't didn't remember them at all. And when I read the full New Testament, because I went through the whole thing, it, it was so exciting. I want to see what happens next. And my first thought, I was not a believer, but my first thought was, this has got to be true. I mean, who could and would make this up? <laughs> you know, it's, it did not have the ring of fiction to me. It had the ring of truth, especially the book of Acts, which... To me, you read the book of Acts, it's a fairly dry, clearly historical account of what happened mm -hmm. and what happened next and who said what and who went where. And, in exquisite know, detail. In exquisite detail. And I'm thinking, okay, I, maybe this is not all complete BS. You know, maybe there's actually a kernel of something that really, maybe Jesus Christ was a real person. I didn't think he was resurrected. That's would be impossible, I thought. But, you know, maybe it's a real guy, and who knows what happened, but you know, this is interesting stuff. Yeah. And, and so, Sai, what was it 
like what was it that had to be true? Like what grabbed you? The first thing that grabbed me was that Jesus Christ was a real person. He was around and he, he probably said the things that are reported that he said. He might have done some things that look like miracles to the people there. He might have hurt, healed some people. People get healed. I was trying to make sense of it in a purely scientific, rational, non-miraculous way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can do that. And I know there, there are plenty of people who do that. I mean, there was this, I don't know if you ever saw, it was called Jesus Christ Superstar. It was a musical, I think. Oh, right. Sure. And, you know, I went to see it. I was already a Christian when I went to see it. And at the end of this musical, Jesus is carried off. You know, he has died and he's carried away. And everybody gets up. And I said, wait a minute, there's another act. No, there wasn't. <laughs> that was the end of the thing. There's no resurrection in this musical. And I was so upset. I was so angry. Wow. I was with a couple of friends. And I said, but this is not how the story ends. Excuse me. You're missing the main thing. So there are many people who will go that far as far as I went and stay there. I was very lucky in that the Holy Spirit had mercy on me. And I don't know if I would have been able to find the truth of Christ on my own, but I had several dreams, two in particular, which featured the person of Jesus Christ. You know that because you've read the draft of the book. They're in the book. And those dreams really got me wondering whether it was more than what I thought. Maybe this is really <laughs> something to think about. And I started going to church more. I started, you know, thinking, you know, I, maybe I could be a believer, but it was really hard. I couldn't do it. I would go to church. I would listen to sermons. I would feel the, the sense of spirituality from the music. But do you believe in God? I'd have to say, mm, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, I, mm. I can't get there. It, it was just too much for me to make that leap, that final leap, based on where I was coming from. And then it all changed. Actually, it was a little bit of a stroke of lightning, but not completely. And that, it happened, again, this is in great detail explained in the book. I was driving between New York and Pittsburgh, and uh, which I did fairly frequently. And I was on the Pittsburgh, the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and I turned on the radio and I heard a preacher. There are a lot of them there. And the radio preacher, I wasn't listening to what he was saying because it was all the same stuff that I'd always heard and I always ignored it. But I noticed that he had a great oratory style. He really liked, he was, you know, great voice, really, you know, you've heard radio and TV preachers. Everybody knows how good they are. And I turned it off because, uh, you know, I was bored. But I started thinking to myself, gee, I, I wonder if I could do something like that. Because I like to talk. <laughs> yeah. And the next thing I knew, I imagined myself preaching a sermon. Hmm. And I did. I preached a sermon to myself while I was driving. And somewhere in the middle there, I started crying and I had to pull over. And I finished the sermon. It was about 10 minutes. And I realized none of the words that I had so-called preached to myself, at least, came from me. I didn't even know some of those words. I mean, I had never thought about the ideas that I was saying. They just came out of me. And I was so emotionally taken by what had happened, I just sat there for about an hour trying to get myself back together so I could keep driving. Mm. And after that, I realized that's it. The Holy Spirit has has come to me, and I'm a, I'm a Christian. Wow. And after that, I've never gone back. I mean, there was no hesitation. There was no doubt. There was no thinking, are you sure? That was over. Fortunately, I had the presence of mind when I got home to type up what I had said in my head. And that sermon is in the book. And it was, it was powerful awakening for me. And that was, oh, about 12 years ago. 
Okay. And I still had a ways to go. I wasn't a part of a church. I Nobody knew I was a Christian for many years. I didn't come out as a Christian for a while. And eventually I did join a church. I'm now a, a member of United Methodist Church. And in fact, I'm the lay leader of my church and uh, pretty active in it. And, you know, that was another step. Joining a church is another step in the faith because as it says throughout the gospel, you know, being part of the church is an important part of, of following Christ. So that's the story in a nutshell. As I said, the details are, um, will soon be public. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've written a little bit about it on my blog, but uh, not the whole thing. And um, after that, as I said, I began devoting myself to what you were mentioning earlier, this whole issue of science and faith, and are they compatible? Yeah. Are they in conflict? Like many people that we know, the people at BioLogos and ASA and many others, and, and you yourself have done a tremendous service with your Evolution 2.0 in explaining to people who have questions, you know, how can I believe in scripture and evolution or and science and that same motivation that you had is the same motivation that, that moves me. And that's one of the reasons we like to talk to each other. <laughs> of course. So that's what I've been doing ever since then. The book is part of it, and I'm pretty active on Twitter. I have a pretty good following and uh, keep trying to push this message. No, it's not one or the other. It's both. You can have both. And we don't know all the answers yet. And I think this is an important message of your book as well. You know, we don't really yet know exactly how evolution works. But what I keep thinking is that just as in cosmology, you know, everybody knew that the universe is steady state and never had a beginning. And then all of a sudden, oh, it does have a beginning. Yes. And that sounds a lot like Genesis. Okay. I think the same thing is going to happen in biology. Right now, there are people who say, well, no, evolution goes against scripture. It's, you know, antagonistic to Genesis, many other parts of scripture. So it can't, you have to choose one or the other. You can't have both. I think just as in the origin of the universe, we're going to find that the origin of life and evolution itself is going to come closer and closer to scriptural truth as time goes on and as more discoveries are made. And I think we're already starting to see that process happening. So that's what I'm interested in. So you made a comment in your book. It was something to the effect of how could you believe in a completely materialistic universe if a quantum event doesn't even happen until a conscious observer observes it. Right. And you alluded to that earlier. Maybe you could unpack why the materialistic view started to fall apart for you. Yeah. Now, of course, I have to preface this by saying I'm a biologist who are notoriously bad at physics, but (laughs) I did study a little bit of physics. As I said, um, I was a chemistry major in college and Chemistry majors have to learn some physics. So, yeah, what it turns out is that, (laughs) and again, this is detailed much better in the book, but it turns out that in 1900, there was a pretty common feeling among physicists that everything was done, that all of nature had been explained. There were a few decimal points that had to be filled in and... (laughs) There was this little matter of biology, which nobody knew anything about, but, you know, minor stuff. So uh, <laughs> so the physicists were all happy that they had, you know, Maxwell had come up with his equations and electricity was now, and magnetism were all explained. There's just one nagging little mystery left, which was light. Nobody could understand light. What the hell was light? You know, it, it was a wave, but when it, what did it move in? I mean, you could have sound waves have to move in air. and Water waves move in water. What does light move in? And there was the theory that there was an ether, which turns out there's no such thing, but nobody knew about light. And Einstein, of course, came up with a theory of relativity, which explained 
light, uh, which explains the speed of light and time, which is very complicated. I'm not going to talk about that. But there were other people, Max Planck and Niels Bohr, around the beginning of the 20th century who were looking at how light moves. And it turns out it's not a continuous thing like sound or uh, anything that's continuous, which is most of nature. They found that not only light, but actually even energy in the atom occurs in little packets, discrete packets, which they call quanta. And I learned this in chemistry. When you have an electron that goes from one energy state to another energy state, it does something very strange. It does not move along a path. Okay, so if I wanted to go from where I am now to my car, which is outside, I have to pass all the locations that are between where I am now and where my car is. Well, electrons don't do that. They mm. jump from where they are immediately to where they want to go in energy level. Mm. So I just learned this as a thing to, to memorize in chemistry. And, and then at some point it dawned on me, wait a minute, what? <laughs> Say that again. It doesn't go between. The t how does that work? We don't know how that works, but that's the basics of quantum mechanics, of quantum theory. And that's pretty weird, but it actually gets even weirder because we also find out that light is not just a wave, it's also a particle because of these little quanta things, they're particles. And it's neither a wave or a particle, and it gives the appearance of being both and neither. And when you try to figure out what is going on with these electrons, photons, which are the particles of light, it turns out that you really can't tell what they're going to do. What they're going to do is, or what they're doing, is actually a probability distribution. So it's not that the photon is there, and we can point to it. It has a probability of being there. It might not be there. Mm -hmm. And the only time that we can tell whether a particle is actually at a particular place is if we observe it. Now, what does that mean? It's not only that we can tell, it's the only time the electron is actually there is if we observe it. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing to say, well, I cannot tell that my computer is here unless I see it. Well, okay, fine. But let's say I'm, not, I'm in a different room and I wanna know whether the computer is on this desk or somewhere else. It doesn't exist on the desk until somehow or other it's measured, okay? And that's what happens with electrons and photons. And they can occupy several things at once. None of this makes any sense. It's totally anti-rational. It goes against all the rules that materialists use for understanding things. This idea that you can go from one thing to another without going anywhere in between the two states. The idea that nothing has an actual existence until it's observed. And it's not just because you see it. It's not just because the equipment has an effect on it. It's been proven experimentally that it actually does not exist in any state until an observation is made. So you need an observer. And that's really weird because why, you know, how does that work? So I'm not explaining it very well now, but it's better in the book if people want to read it. And there are many other places to find it. You can look online, observer yeah. effect. It's very well known. Um, I think you've written about it as well on your blog to some extent. A little. Yeah. So this is something that destroys materialism because the idea that the, the universe is a wound up watch and then it just runs, you know, it's a, it's a mechanical device and all the laws, you know, tell us how things are going to be. We can predict everything. No. One of the bedrocks of modern physics, quantum physics, is Heisenberg's uncertainty principle which states, and this is absolutely proven and there's no doubt about it, that you cannot possibly know the position and the momentum of an electron at the same time. It's unknowable. And it doesn't really need more research. We will never someday figure it out. This is true forever and ever. It's a bedrock of nature. Yeah, that shook my materialism pretty bad. <laughs> well, what you're describing 
is the definitive case for holistic relationships in the universe, right? Because if this electron isn't actually there unless I'm there to observe it, then that inherently means that there is a relationship at a distance which requires this certain amount of completion before something happens and that it's not just built off of like building blocks of smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller things until we get to the smallest thing. There are inherent interactions between events and observers, which actually turns the whole materialistic notion completely upside down and inside out. Exactly. So, so why do you think sigh like everybody should have figured this out you would think that very famous physicists not all of them theists have written and said that consciousness is required for reality consciousness came first and then the universe i mean Mm -hmm. things that sound whoa crazy no are Nobel Prize winning physicists saying these things. And, you know, there are all kinds of quotes. People have said, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't. Uh, You know, this idea of consciousness being a primordial force has been touted by many physicists. And your question, why don't people see? That's a good question. I mean, when I tweet something about on this subject, or anything about science and faith and spirituality, I always get responses from atheists that generally not scientists, but they're atheists right. who say, well, oh, yeah. you've given up on rationality and reason and logic. Yeah, because rationality, reason, and logic are not scientific. <laughs> well, you need to I explain mean, that for a second. I will. I mean, but I don't think everybody else does. Let's start with logic. Logic is a brilliant, beautiful system that was developed originally by the Greeks and worked on over the centuries. And it's a great way to look at internal consistency of statements. So if I say all people have heads, and then I say a cat has a head, therefore it's a person, that's logically invalid. And there are rules that will tell you why that's logically invalid. So it's a useful system for that kind of thing. The Greeks thought that since the real world, what they consider the real world was this, the world of ideas, of uh, essential concepts, they thought that logic was the way to le- understand all of nature. Mm-hmm. What happened with, uh, in Christian Europe in the Middle Ages was Roger Bacon and others started thinking, well, maybe there's another way to discover. Maybe if God created the world and God is a rational being, then maybe the world, we can understand the world by observing it. We can understand God's creation by looking at the creation itself, not logic, which is an abstract way of thinking, but actually, you know, what, what happens to a rock when it falls down a hill? I mean, you know, do experiments. What actually happens with things? And that was the meaning of science. And what science uses logic as a tool sometimes, but logic is not very useful at other times. I mean, in biology, logic is all, you can't even use it. I mean, it just makes no sense. I mean, some of the things that happen in biology are, you know, like, my favorite example is Occam's razor. You know, the simplest explanation is often the best. Not in biology. <laughs> no, it doesn't work. For various you, reasons. You mean an example of that? Oh, my goodness. There's so many. So I have some written down. I don't have them in hand, but we don't need the details. In biology, if you find there's often a pathway where you have, let's say, metabolite A, uh, of chemical is metabolized, is changed by chemical reactions to B. And that um, chemical reaction goes on until the level of B gets very high, and then it inhibits the reaction. So it controls, it's, it's a feedback inhibition. 
And that's very nice. It controls how much B there is. So you don't have too much B and you don't run out of A. That all sounds very logical, but that's not how actually these things work. What happens is you have A going to B and B inhibits that reaction, but B also makes C and C also inhibits the reaction and C makes D, E, and F, and G, and two of those activate the reaction, and two of them inhibit it, and it goes on and on. Mm. And you don't need any of that. So you would say, well, that's not simple. That's a very complex system, and it does the same thing that the, the easy one, the simple one does. Oh, I see. So why is it there? Well, it's there for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes it's just historical accident that it's there. And sometimes it's because there's a huge fine control that goes on and having all these repetitive overlapping um, control systems is very useful. It also prevents, you know, a mistake. So, you know, you wouldn't guess if you had a multiple choice question and the question was, which is the most likely scenario? And you'd say A goes to B and B inhibits the reaction. That's the A, that's the simplest. And the next choice would be several things like that, which are all repetitive and seem to be redundant. Well, those are the right ones. So logic is okay. It's everybody uses it, but it's not science. To know what's really going on in the world, you have to actually study the world. Quantum mechanics would never have been discovered by logic or by reason or rationality because it's not reasonable and it's not rational. At least not from the frame of mind that everybody yes. was in, right? Exactly. It's rational from a completely outside perspective yes. that nobody could have imagined. You're not saying it irrational, but within, right. like you couldn't get from here to there without experiments. That's right. Right. And your point is very good because what we call rational, we should call human rational. I'm sure quantum mechanics and relativity and all the crazy things that go on that went on in the Big Bang and the singularities and black holes and all these other crazy stuff about reality are perfectly rational in God's mind. But we ain't God. The good part is we now know that this stuff is true, even though mm -hmm. you know, it sounds crazy, it's true. So if it's true, it does tell us something about the Creator, which was the whole hope of the early Christian scientists. We have learned about the Creator. We have learned that the Creator is not a really smart guy. It's much more than that, you know? <laughs> I mean, uh, the Creator is not some, with all due respect, Perry, he's not a really smart engineer, you know? <laughs> he's not a really smart software designer. He's way beyond that, because who would design a universe, you know, like that if you were a human? Nobody. Well, you can see that in lots of different scientific endeavors. So, for example, when the human genome first got published, there was this flurry of, hey, what's all these repetitive sequences that um, uh, we're pretty sure that's just the junk DNA. And then, you know, 10 years later, that turned out to be ludicrously wrong. Right, like outrageously hubristic for people to jump to that conclusion. And so what you're, what you're saying is that a person with a little bit of knowledge of Occam's razor and a little bit of knowledge of elementary logic can completely jackknife themselves yeah. <laughs> when they're dealing with real actual scientific problems. Yeah. Look, uh, your example is great. That's absolutely true. But even on a simpler level, before the human genome was sequenced, we had already sequenced several other genomes, like, you know, some simple animals. And one of the big questions was how many genes are there? And a lot of these animals had like, like 20,000 genes. And so we, it was generally assumed that humans would have about 100,000 genes. That's what we thought we'd need. Lo and behold, the genome is sequenced. Guess how many genes there are in the human genome? 
It is about 20,000, isn't 20, it? 20,000, yeah, same. <laughs> we have fewer genes than rice. Rice has about 40,000 genes. <laughs> yeah, I was giving a talk several years ago, and Francis Collins was in the audience, and I said to him, am I right, Francis? I mean, uh, we weren't we surprised when we saw the number of genes? He said, absolutely. And then he told me the one about rice. <laughs> this is several years ago. But the point is that that surprise was shocking. And it led us to think, well, how is that possible? How is it possible that we have the same number of genes as almost every other animal, every other plant, less than a lot of them? There's a fish that has like 60,000 genes. We have to rethink the whole story of genetics, of how genes work. It's not simply, you know, you have a gene for everything, and that gene does its thing, and you have a characteristic or whatever. No, it's much more complicated. I mean, it's complex at the level that's almost astonishing. I mean, one of the things I've been working on since I retired, and one of the papers that I have coming out, is on what we now call gene regulatory networks. It turns out that you know, have a gene, but a gene has to be expressed in order to have a function to make a protein. And the control of what genes are expressed when is unbelievably complex. I mean, it's just, it's almost, I think it's verging on the capacity of humans to even grasp how these things work. That's reality. You know, it's an amazing universe we live in. And we are only beginning to scratch the surface of how it all works. So we're going to wrap up here in the next couple minutes. Um, okay. I would say that there's been this pendulum swing in our culture where I'd say about 10 years ago, there was a, a deafening roar of science and religion are completely opposed to each other. Religion is beating the crap out of it. But I would say that the pendulum has definitely been swinging the other direction. Where do you see things going? Like, what is your crystal ball? Uh, like, if we wanted to say size uh, three or five predictions of the next 10 or 20 years, or even things that are already true but have not entered the consciousness of the public. What, what do you see coming? That's a good question. I think you're right. I think that there is hope. We now know at the moment that many young people are leaving the faith. Often they were in very strict, rigid, fundamentalist churches and were told, you know, don't pay any attention to all this modern science stuff. <laughs> evolution, astrophysics, uh, stick with your Bible, and they just reject it, and they walk away, and they lose yep. their faith. And that's what we're trying to, we, I mean, many, many people, uh, the two of us, obviously, and then, you know, all of many, many other organizations, which we've mentioned, Biologos, et cetera, trying to deal with that. And I think we're going to be successful. That's my prediction. I think that we will see a trend starting soon, I hope, I believe starting soon, towards young people rejoining the church. They may not rejoin the same churches that they left. They probably may, not, I would probably say. Not. Probably not. They may start rejoining. And I also see, believe it or not, a trend in evangelical and some fundamentalist churches and groups to accepting large parts of evolution, for example, to ex mm -hmm. understanding that, well, they already say that, you know, regular evolution with natural selection occurred after the flood. That's how all the, the <laughs> very specific species that we have now developed. So they accept that. There's a few things they're not quite up to yet, but they're not, it's not a ideology that's 100% against evolution. It, it's getting more accepting. Yeah. And I think as, on the other end, and this is, you know, what you know best, the scientists working on things like evolution and cosmology, et cetera, are finding things that make it less objectionable to Christianity. And your book, Evolution 2.0, is a testament to that. I mean, we're finding all kinds of mechanisms and ways that 
variation occurs that have nothing to do with chance. I mean, you've written about this, they, and so have I. Uh, one of the articles I wrote recently was about teleology in evolution, and that there is purpose that can be demonstrated in life and in evolution. So there's a lot of science and there's a lot of faith that's kind of, I think, you know, struggling to get together. And when they get to a certain distance and they're not that far apart, there's going to be an explosion. You know, when you put two magnets together, yeah. like it gets the, the attraction. And, and yeah. there, there is an attraction because, you know, I took um, one of my business friends to the ASA conference a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And he, he just thought it'd be interesting. And I was having a meeting down the street. And so, he's, so he changed his plane tickets and he came. And he was just completely blown away. Mm-hmm. He had no idea how much stuff could be incorporated into a faith worldview because of what he had been taught. Exactly. And so he just went out with his, I think he had pieces of his brain sort of hanging. <laughs> so it, that was really cool. Well, well, so your book is called the works of his hands, a scientist journey from atheist to faith. Is that correct? Correct. And it's either now or very shortly to be on pre-order on Amazon and, and I'll just say, I thought it was an electric read. It was really interesting and very thoughtful and did not fit a lot of common stereotypes or oversimplifications. I really enjoyed it. And I said, sorry, I grabbed him by the lapel. Sorry, <laughs> you have to get this out there. You have to get a good publisher. So it was really cool to read your book. So thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's the publisher is Kriegel, K-R-E-G-E-L. They're in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, they've been doing a great job on it. I think uh, starting in the summer, there'll start being some more publicity. I should mention my blog, which is called The Book of Works. Oh, yes. And I also have a, I'm starting a page for the book. That's just called The Works of His Hands. But uh, if you go to The Book of Works, you'll see a page about the book. So... Yeah, and as I said, I think the, the pre-order thing will start soon. It's still several months before release, but, um, you know, I, I'm hoping it can help people who are standing on the fence, not sure what to do, you know, mm-hmm. trying to understand what is all this culture war about. And, and the basic message of the book is peace. There's no war. Just accept the peace. The peace what a great note to end on. Yes, indeed. Thank you. All right. Take care. All right, Cy. Great interview. Appreciate it. Take care. All right. Bye. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Fingerprints.com.